Minister has been to Iraq. While military success has taken place, we do need to be aware that the threat continues. The defence chiefs get a telling off and the commanding officer's rousing speech at the boxing. When we go, it won't be about scoring goals or points. It's going to be about life or death. Prime Minister has paid tribute to the bravery and sacrifice of the Iraqi security forces, many of them British trained, in their fight against the so-called Islamic State. Theresa May was speaking during a visit to British troops in Iraq, where she also met the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi. Ali Gibson has been travelling with her across the Middle East. As she stepped off an RAF C-130 Hercules, Theresa May became the first major leader to visit Iraq since Mosul was liberated and she is the first British PM to visit the country since 2008. Camp Taji sits 40 miles north of Baghdad, a sprawling international base where British troops are part of an international coalition training the Iraqi security forces. They take the fight to the so-called Islamic State. Since 2014, there has been huge progress. 97% of the towns and cities once claimed by the radical extremist group are now back under government control. But Theresa May says the fight isn't over yet. While military success has taken place, we do need to be aware that the threat continues as uh, individuals disperse as they try to inspire attacks across the world. The current deployment from Camp Taji are from the two Mercian battle group, including specialist medics, engineers and counter-IED teams. They've trained 6,700 Iraqis in the last six months. Sergeant Fiona and Corporal Kyle. They love it. They're enthusiastic. They want to know more. They they understand the importance of medical training. They're all really thankful and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it, it does make you feel good that you're actually trying to help another part of the world. This visit comes with new funding too. £50 million will be given for humanitarian assistance, but also to help with reconciliation and reform in Iraq. Another £10 million will help build Iraq's counter-terrorism capabilities particularly important as IS fighters disperse across the surrounding country's borders. But it's not just about the physical space. Mrs May also said she wants to tackle the online space and the evolving threat that IS pose. 50% of extremist content that is posted online is reposted and shared within two hours of being put up. And IS have repeatedly used the internet to spread its ideology and recruit foreign fighters. We are working very closely with the tech companies. Uh, we, the UK government, have been at the forefront of this, but working internationally to ensure that we can see the tech companies themselves ensuring that we don't see this material disseminated, that they can take it down more quickly. We're seeing some success, but we're continuing to work with them. The Prime Minister also visited Baghdad to visit the Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, thanking him for the bravery and sacrifice of the Iraqi security forces. It has been their fight. This time around, British troops are very much at arm's reach. Theresa May's three-day visit to the Middle East continues with talks in Saudi Arabia and Jordan as the PM seeks to forge a stronger relationship in the region and boost the UK's security. 
Ali Gibson with the Prime Minister in Iraq. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hello, Christopher. And the Prime Minister is saying the Gulf security is our security. And bar what we've heard in Ali's report, what do you think this visit will achieve? The Prime Minister works on the simple, uh, the simple history that the United Kingdom, certainly since the 1920s and 30s, and the formation of what we could call model, modern Middle East with its modern boundaries, for example, Saudi Arabia in 1932, etc., uh, is things that we really do understand. What we have not, and what, when she says, you know, the front line more or less, as just as Tony Blair said, the front, our front line is the Middle East. What what this she doesn't have, and nobody has, is a convincing authority that whatever coalition we are part of or think we're part of can actually can actually do the job which we say so convincingly we are doing. And she has said to Haider Al-Abadi that she will commit for as long as uh, they want British support within the country. Yes, and also when you go to somewhere, uh, let, let's let's say where she was the day before, let, when you go to somewhere like Jordan, you have a common interest, but you actually have a common understanding of the way that you work together and what your responsibilities are. When you come into uh, Iraq, uh, and you say we want to congratulate the Iraqi forces for doing what they have done. By and large, they have done it not very well at all. And that's not their fault. That is the circumstances of what has been created, what was there in the first place. And in fact, the fact that there was a complete change at one time, Sunnis were persecuting uh, uh, Shia and now Shia mm. are persecuting uh, Sunnis. And there's nothing, nothing a prime ministerial visit can do about that. It is, it is surprising, though, that point that no British prime minister has been to Iraq since 2008. Well, it's too dangerous. And then why would you go anyway? And there was no need to go, and it wasn't resolved. And we're saying now that Iraq is resolved, and Iraq isn't resolved at the moment. There's still is she trying to draw a line under things by this visit? Uh, no, but I mean, if I were a real cynic, I would actually say that we are going to uh, to Jordan and Iraq to show uh, to show the rest of Europe, for example, that that Britain is still uh, an international force, that it has its interests, which mm. are the same as the European interests, of course, and that's in the Middle East. Interesting thoughts. Now, President Trump has insisted that North Korea would face additional major sanctions after it claimed it had successfully tested its most powerful ballistic missile to date. Kim Jong-un fired an intercontinental missile early on Tuesday that was initially thought capable of reaching the White House and London, but analysts have since cast doubt on that claim. Well, we're joined by Rear Admiral Chris Parry, a former commander of the UK's amphibious task group and now a strategic analyst. Good to speak to you today, Chris Parry. The UN Security Council held an emergency meeting last night. What do you make of the international response so far? Well, I think it's been uh, pretty feeble. We've um, reached a point now where um, the indications are that he's able to weaponise with a nuclear device a ballistic missile that's capable of hitting Japan and South Korea and possibly even the United States. I'm not quite sure when the 11th uh, hour uh, occurs in this situation, but it seems to me we're well past it. And unless the international community takes good charge of it, uh, I think uh, between them, China and the United States, are going to have to work some sort of solution to this problem. You say the response has been feeble. What should it have been? Well, I think that all uh, five permanent members of the Security Council should have said, look, enough's enough. We need a coordinated, comprehensive plan for dealing with essentially what is the vilest regime on the planet. 
Uh, it doesn't show any restraint, and it now has access to deployable nuclear weapons. Uh, if that isn't a clear and present danger for the international community, mm. I, I don't know what is. So um, if the United Nations actually wants to play a role uh, in the modern world, it needs to step up to the plate, I think. Christopher Lee, you say that the Americans are already considering behind closed doors the enough's enough's options. Uh, yeah, I mean... It, this is just a conversation three weeks ago with some people from the State Department and also people from the NSA, and it goes like this. Um, what King Jong-un will be, if you like, politically satisfied with, and what the Americans are coming to the conclusion that there is the only, only static solution to this is what uh, George Kennan came to the conclusion in 1946 with the Russians, and that is containment. You come to a point when, when North Korea's maturity uh, as, a, as a nuclear power is recognised when the Americans have to change their politi- policy to say, we know there is a threat, effectively a junior uh, a superhero here in, in, in North Korean terms, and therefore what we do, we have to contain that. And when you start to contain... Contain you, how? You, you, you contain by bringing it in, by recognising that it is a nuclear power. You contain by having different... Uh, I mean, the American uh, sort of way out left field answer to this is not cut off the oil, it is not cut off the, the rice or whatever you're doing, but is that you, you, you start spending money in North Korea. Now, that is, that is inconceivable, certainly on, on, from, from this administration, but it is the idea that, that North Korea has come to the seniority in the arms group that it becomes a country that has to be contained. What you cannot contain, you can contain its capability, mm. but you cannot contain its intention. Chris Perry, what do you think of that? Well, I think uh, we try containment uh, all the way along, and uh, what we're faced with here is uh, a state that is uh, determined on financial extortion at the point of a a nuclear device. Um, And I'm afraid that the deal that the international communities are being offered is, if my regime collapses in any way, even if it's my own fault, then I'm going to start firing off nuclear weapons. And I think the real danger is that uh, we're going to see a nuclear device exploded over the sea at some stage in the near future, just to ram the point home. Uh, and that's mm. a very short step, you know, from saying I can do that on top of an American carrier battle group. Well, um, sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to go on to say that President Trump used Twitter, as he often does, to make his announcements about further sanctions on North Korea, but it was his retweets on another subject which have made the headlines in the last 24 hours. Uh, Here's the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, answering an urgent question in the Commons earlier. President Donald Trump was wrong to retweet videos posted by far-right group Britain First. When we look at the wider picture, the relationship between the UK and America then I know how valuable the friendship is between our two nations. And as Home Secretary, I can tell the House that the importance of the relationship between our countries, the unparalleled sharing of intelligence between our countries, is vital. It has undoubtedly saved British lives. That is the bigger picture here, and I would urge people to remember that. Mm, the bigger picture, Christopher. Um, this is supposedly our closest ally and a fellow NATO Come country. Come on, listen, listen. In the United States, this story is forgotten almost now and it was never recognised by too many people. The biggest problem with this story, apart from the fact that uh, President Trump tweeted it, was that 
a press officer at Downing Street uh, then gave him a fanging. And then the Prime Minister had to back up or decided that was a good thing and also had a go at him. Prime Ministers and press, press officers are not in that position to do so. Their job, that's why they send an embassy there. We can say, look, listen, do you mind? But totally ignore it. This is, this is Trumpomania and, and, and it doesn't matter. It is not going to change the state of the special relationship, which only exists when the Americans want it anyway. Christopher Stay with us and Chris Parry will speak to you a little later in the programme. Still to come, beach landings. Do we still need an amphibious capability? And that rousing regimental boxing speech we hear from the officer who made it. The UK's most senior military officers have had a dressing down after a recent stream of leaks to the media giving details about planned defence cuts. It's understood Stephen Lovegrove, the permanent secretary in the MOD, warned them twice in recent weeks. Well, Alistair Bunkle uncovered the story for Sky News. I asked him who got told off and how serious it was. So there was two occasions. The first was in person with the permanent secretary. And the reason he took the meeting was because Sir Michael Fallon was resigning at the time. The individuals in the room, I'm told, were, in addition to the Permanent Secretary, was the uh, Chief of the General Staff, General Sonic Carter, um, the Chief of the Air Staff, the First Sea Lord, and Commander of Joint Forces Command. So you have those four senior individuals in the room for the meeting. And then the letter, which followed on a couple of weeks later, after another leak, uh, well, that was sent to all of those individuals uh, in a very sort of small circle, if you like. Isn't this just service chiefs trying to protect their assets? And isn't it quite normal for these kind of leaks to happen when you've got a defence review? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it absolutely is. I think the Ministry of Defence tear their hair out a bit. I spoke to a couple of days ago when we were preparing the story, I spoke to a couple of former cabinet secretaries privately, and I think they generally rolled their eyes and had a wry smile and said the chiefs will be the chiefs. The problem is, is you have to try, I think, when you're inside the MOD and when you're in the political circle, work out exactly how you play this. And if you've got a defence review that is going on a number of months, you either put a lot of information out there or you don't. And if you don't, then people will find a way of getting the information out there in order to try and create a public debate about what should or shouldn't be cut. This is exactly what's happening. Talking about putting information out there, the Defence Committee seems to be so concerned that it's taking evidence about the Royal Marines and Britain's amphibious capability. What do you make of that? Well, I I, I think firstly, the rumours, the speculation that the Royal Marines could be cut by a thousand, the amphibious capability could be got rid of. I mean, I think that is a perfect example of where information that is being considered has been leaked into the public domain, and then it has built up a head of steam by those who oppose it. And I'm only guessing here, I think they will be successful in opposing that. And so you could argue that is a successful outcome of leaking uh, if you were in the Royal Marines or in the military. The Defence Select Committee clearly feel that there is enough credence in these rumours to launch an investigation. I mean, don't forget that Johnny Mercer sits on the Defence Select Committee, MP for Plymouth, so he's got a clearly constituency reason to oppose these cuts, but also himself um, was a commando and so has a personal reason to oppose them. So he is driving a lot of it, but I think he has an awful lot of support behind him. Mm. Will this be the end of the leaks, do you think, or do you think the job's going to get even more difficult? (laughs) I I don't think it'll be the end of the leaks. The review doesn't publish until February. So we've got about three months. And if you've got a vacuum of information, then people are going to scrabble around for info. 
but also those who really want to do what they can to try and make sure that the government does not cut the armed forces any further will want to try and keep this debate going in public. And one of the ways of doing that is to leak information to the media and then watch what happens afterwards. Do you think it actually makes any difference to the decisions that are made? Um, good question. I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think, one, as, one, as one person put to me, they said, whilst the chiefs have been squabbling amongst themselves, and don't forget, because you always get into service rivalry here, whilst the chiefs have been squabbling amongst themselves, Mark Sedwell, who's the National Security Advisor, the guy conducting this review, has been free to sort of get on with his job and start taking some money for himself, because this is not a review that just concerns defence. It concerns all aspects of national security, so the intelligence agencies, etc., I think the other view is that the more information there is out in the public and the more you see a public backlash against it, the more you see political opposition to it, then the more likely it is that the politicians who have to end up making the decisions, the Defence Secretary, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, are going to think twice about what they do before they do it. That was Sky's Alistair Bunkle. Well, as we've just heard, next week, MPs on the Defence Committee will begin an inquiry into the Royal Marines and the UK amphibious capability. On Tuesday, there's an oral evidence session, but there's also a web forum where interested parties can leave their comments. Well, Rear Admiral Chris Parry is still with us. Um, you're a former commander of the UK's amphibious task group, uh, but you're not making any comments to this committee. Why not? Well, I'm not sure it'll make any difference, to tell you the truth. I think uh, this measure will go ahead. Um, it's the only area of the Royal Navy uh, that they can, can feasibly take cuts from the front line where it won't affect uh, current capability. And what do you think if those cuts do go ahead? I think it's all part of a, a normal reshaping of what I call um, the literal capability as opposed to the amphibious capability. The ships in question, Albion and Bulwark, uh, were conceived uh, during a different era at a time when we didn't have uh, unmanned uh, vehicles, we didn't have the sort of precision weapons that we have today uh, at a time when those ships could operate close inshore with impunity, uh, with a minimum of protection. I don't think that applies nowadays. But there are two issues here. It's not just the ships, it's the reduction in the number of marines. And I think the two issues have to be separated. The ships are one thing, uh, but reducing the Royal Marines by a thousand, I think, is unacceptable. They're probably the best infantry in the world uh, for assault operations from the sea. Uh, and the future will be about operating at and from the sea uh, in many of the trouble spots around the world. And it's not the time to cut the Royal Marines. Do we still need to be able to do beach landings, though? No, we don't. Uh, not in not at the scale in which we propose to do them. Uh, if you look back at the Falklands, the number of ships required even for a beach landing in San Carlos at the time was in the 30s. Second World War, uh, you're up at the 500s. Uh, and to say that the penny packet of amphibious ships that we have for beach landings are going to make a difference in future, I don't believe they are. We've got two very large aircraft carriers coming in. We've got to concentrate in future on what I would call low footprint, high impact operations where we operate from over the horizon and I'm afraid the Royal Marines have got to get used to being the weapon systems of those ships 
spending the majority of their time afloat going ashore just to um, uh, conduct specific missions, these high-impact, low-footprint missions. We've also got to rem- remind ourselves that this is, a, this is an image thing. That's the wrong expression, but it will do. Uh, we have this idea that the, the, you know, the, 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 the platforms come out uh, uh, with, with Marines on board, the front goes down, up the beach they go, having surveyed uh, it originally, and it makes good Hollywood. The troops, as you say, Chris, the troops are some of the best, if not the best, infantry, soldiers, anywhere else in special forces or whatever. Uh, If you take away a weapon system, uh, and they are the weapon systems, then you've got problems. But there's no reason why you shouldn't sort of say to them, you've got to do it a different way in future. They're quite That's happy right. to do it in any way. You just show me where you so want Chris, me to do a job. Chris Perry, what is the different way? Just outline it to us. Well, uh, what, instead of actually landing on a beach, piling up all your equipment and saying, right, let's go off and do something, what we do in future is what was known 15 years ago is ship to objective manoeuvre. You take the Marines straight to their objective. Uh, and that'll either be done by aviation uh, or it'll be done uh, by other means. It'll also be supported by a range of missiles and uh, modern munitions, including unmanned munitions, that will enable them to be have much heavier impact and effect than they have in the past. Uh, so you're, actually, afraid... you're arguing that the, the capability would be better in future? What we've got yeah, to remember I, is, I is that so. we're changing the shape of the services over the next 10 years. We've got to start thinking of what you use the services for. There's no reason why you shouldn't have these specialists like the Royal Marines. And let's just take them as one example, because there are a lot of other people in the services today will be fine that they're doing a job, i.e. getting contact with the enemy, but they're doing it in a different way than once they did it, and in a more efficient way. Chris Parry, at the beginning you said that this was the only place where the Royal Navy could consider making cuts. Um... Is it right the Royal Navy should be asked to make these cuts? Could, could there be a, another service that we should, should be making cuts instead? Well, well, I have to say, I mean, uh, Christopher's right. We, we have to look at the whole concept of operations for the future. Where do we want to put our investment? Do we want to put it in land-heavy units, for example? What's the future of tanks in a world of unmanned attack aircraft, in a world of uh, uh, sort of attack helicopters and things like that. Uh, we've got to look at the strike aircraft that we've got. And I'm afraid to say that we don't just don't need a strategic uh, defence review. We need a, a complete review of our concept of operations for the future. And how, how, how well do you think the people who are thinking on these subjects are doing? <laughs> well, look, I, I'm retired now. Who, who am I to judge? Uh, you know, it's like a president of the United States criticising his predecessors. Let's just say it's not being done as I would have done it when I was in the service. Mm. How would you have done it? <laughs> Much better. <laughs> you could say you, that. You've also got to. You've also got to have some one other survey. And that is the United Kingdom, a United Kingdom government has got to say, this is our foreign policy for the next 20 years. Mm. What's the great strategy? Yeah, and what military do we need to guarantee it? Okay, on that... On that note, we will have to leave it there for today. Rear Admiral Chris Parry, really good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. And the deadline for submission to the Web Forum is Thursday, the 21st of December. Now, let's talk about boxing. Here's the CEO of the Queen's Royal Hussars giving a rousing speech at a regimental boxing match last week. You hear professional athletes talking about the sports field like it's the battlefield. But for me, I think we need to be careful with that. When we go to war as the Queen's Royal Hussars, We don't know how long we'll go for. We'll fight an enemy that won't play by the rules. There will be no umpire. There will be no referee. When we go, it won't be about scoring goals or points. It's going to be about life or death. 
We're going for the highest possible reasons, which will be to defend our nation, to defend our national interests, to defend the things that we think are important about the way we live, we live our lives. So sport isn't war, and war is certainly not a game. However, sport is a great way to train some of the things we need to do to be good at warfare. And boxing is the ultimate sport for doing that. Well, that was Lieutenant Colonel Nick Cowley making the kind of speech soldiers might hear on the eve of battle. I asked him why he chose those words. Firstly, I wasn't 100% uh, sure that it was getting filmed. Um, however, what we're trying to do at the QRH is we are a high readiness tank regiment and we're trying to make sure that we're always prepared to deploy on operations at any time. And I think it was quite an emotionally charged night being a boxing night. I think it summed up a lot of what we're doing in terms of building, you know, what we call warrior athletes, so fit people who are ready to go into combat. So it felt like an appropriate moment to talk about some of the things that we're likely to face should we be deployed. Mm. And you compared combat and sport with that on the battlefield, but you were keen to underline the difference. Why did you think it's important to talk about that? Well, I think sport is a really excellent way of preparing for operations in many respects. I think the way that you need to build up and um, train beforehand the fact that you need to overcome certain fears and then clearly during the actual sport having the will to win and the fitness and aggression to win. So I think it's a really important part of preparing for combat. However, I also think it's important for us to understand that combat and when we go to war will be very different to sports in so many ways and the kind of profound things that we'll be asking our young men and women to do on the battlefield will be far beyond anything you can recreate in a sporting arena not just in terms of the risk that we will be expecting to take, the importance of them performing um, when we're asking them to, but also the fact that, you know, failure or winning is so much more than could ever even be compared to any type of sport. You use the phrase, when we go to war, is that the kind of mindset you think all soldiers should have, that it is going to happen at some point? I think so, and I think we do, and certainly in the Queen's Royal Hazards we do. We are... You know, the Britain's high readiness heavy tank regiment and what that means in a very uncertain world that we're living in, we're constantly training with that sort of mindset and we're on short notice to move should we be asked by the nation to go and defend their interests, then we would have to be moving quickly. So there's no, there's, there's no way we can train once we're asked to go. So we need to keep preparing and honing our skills uh, literally on a daily basis so that we're ready uh, when asked to deploy. Mm, that's the training side of it, but how useful is sport in times when there are fewer or no combat operations in perhaps motivating troops or giving a different outlet to aggression? Well, I think it's good. I mean, I, I think you're, you, you're exactly right. It is good to play sport anyway because I think young men and women in the army enjoy that type of thing. I think it promotes team spirit and fitness and everything else. Um, so there's no downside to playing plenty of sport, and we're certainly promoting that at the Queen's Royal Hazards. Um, but I also think there's some good lessons we can that we will learn playing sport we can draw into operations. That was Lieutenant Colonel Nick Cowley. Christopher, what do you think about what he was saying? I tell you, the, you used to get this... It, this sounds very old-fashioned sort of stuff. Come on, lads, this is us together. And it's a reminder, for example, Queen Royal Hazards of how important the cat badge is. Uh, when we come to these defence cuts we've been talking about, if they, when they start disappearing, people do still, in spite of all the WYSIWYG uh, weapon systems they have, 
all the joint exercises they take part in, all the new enemies that they're fighting for, they are still the Queen's Royal Hussars. They still fight as almost, if you like, a family unit with, with the Colonel and the Colonel's Lady and all those things that make the whole sense of it. If you go back to the Victorians, they would have been giving the same sort of speeches, say, at the, at the end of the century. So there's, there's great War. value in it, isn't there? There's enormous value in it. And I will tell you, there's not only enormous value in it, uh, out of all the daily orders that go get pinned up on the on on the bulkhead every day um this is the one this is the speech in the uh qrh that would be remembered for a long 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 time mm. you know and without sort of rubbishing the uh, perhaps the, more so than who won the boxing i don't know <laughs> uh, well we never got round to that but no, in didn't. some ways uh, nick cowley i think probably won the heavyweight division with, <laughs> with, 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 with his speech now hms queen elizabeth the aircraft carrier will be commissioned this time next week well th- this day next week won't it won't she yeah um, i mean she's she's actually in the navy now or she will be there in the Navy. And then you've got to work out whether there's the other one going to come along. And the thought of trying to put two of them stuffed into Portsmouth, I mean, is quite bewildering. I mean, the only consolation... It's going to be a big day, though, isn't it? Let's face it. It's going to be a fantastic day. I mean, the biggest ship the Navy has ever had. It is built here. It is... There's only one slight problem, is they'll have to go around Portsmouth and digging out from the bars some sailors to actually drive these things. (laughs) uh, Because they won't have it. But it ties in with what Chris Parry was saying earlier in the programme about, you know, we've got a different sort of navy you've got a different sort of services now the battle is on for the next stage and the queen elizabeth is right in the front of forced projection of britain's britain's foreign policy and that's quite a thing to imagine next thursday it is and that is all we have time for for now join the conversation christopher and i are live on the forces news facebook page on thursdays from about 3 15 uk time today's video is already up or you can tweet us at bfbs sitrep and subscribe to the podcast i'm kate chabot thanks for listening we'll be back same time next week but for now bye-bye <laughs>